Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello! Happy birthday for this week. Thank you. I, I uh, actually had a lovely day. My wife, for a surprise, rented a little motorboat and we went puttering up and down the canal in central London. I didn't have you as a motorboat driver. Were you, were you in the sort of driver's seat? I was, yeah. I, I used to have a boat, actually. When I used to um, spend a lot of time in Sweden, I used to have a little motorboat. It was a yacht. It was, come on, it was a yacht. But, but it was it? a super yacht, yes, yes. You were an oligarch with a yacht. That's where the Jeffocracy came from, basically. Do you remember the Duran Duran video, Rio? Nah. Hang on, you're a man of the 80s. You don't remember their famous video on the yacht? Well, I remember the song, Rio, but I mean... Mm. Okay. I was pretty sort of square. I just, you know, I'm not sure. Too you know. square for Duran Duran. Well, I don't know. What about Howard's Way? Yeah, I'm more Howard's Way than Duran Duran. My boat was neither a super yacht or even a modest yacht. It was just a little, I mean, it basically had an engine the size of a lawnmower engine on the back of it. And I used to go pottering around in the Stockholm archipelago. And I always say to my wife how much I miss it. So we, we went on the Grand Union Canal from Paddington to Camden. Did you have to do the locks then? No, no locks. There's no locks. If you if you go for a longer trip, then you have to navigate locks, ah. which famously are ruinous for a marriage. What do you mean famously? I did, eh? Because I think if you go on a narrow boating holiday, um, I think you see a lot of couples arguing at the locks. Is that true? Yeah, I think think they're thought of as real uh, real triggers for underlying marital issues. I've got this theory that. Um, sat navs have probably lowered the divorce rate (laughs) (laughs) because don't you think that that i mean it's slightly simplistic but i mean don't you think that like map arguments about maps you know yes yes it's lessened considerably my mother has had a very good sense of direction and my father had no sense of direction and i've inherited my father's well, have you got a good sense of direction? I think you probably do. No, I'm, I'm I'm quite a good map reader, but I don't have a good uh, a good sense of direction. That was a great thing about the canal, though. Really, um, I didn't have to worry about directions. Well, that's good. Just go one way and then come back again. Yeah, I was slightly alarmed when when we rented the boat. The guy said to me, "Now, occasionally." Uh, a, a carrier bag will get tangled up in the propeller. Here's what you have to oh do. God. Oh, God. Oh, God. I went into a panic at that stage because I, oh I don't want to be dealing with fishing carrier bags off propellers and using sticks and navigating the boat. Oh, and then something else happened. We came out of a tunnel, or we're coming out of a tunnel, and, and we see a walking stick drop down from above. 
Oh my god, and, and you rescued water. it. You are a hero, Jeff. The, you're amazing. Well, the people were st- on your birthday. Well, you well, should definitely yeah. get in the local newspaper. Yeah, well, the, the people were standing Have up. a go, yeah, walking yeah, stick yeah. hero, Jeff, rescues the walking stick. I think you've correctly intuited what happened because the people were standing above on the bridge saying, oh, can you, can you get that walking stick for us? And I tried to get the boat near it and failed quite miserably and then just had to mouth I'm so sorry to them this reminded me of have you ever been in the park and there is a game of football going on a couple of hundred meters away and the ball goes out of play and then it rolls past your feet and yeah it was the same thing yeah. it was beyond my capabilities to get that walking stick back to them the I mean funnily it's funny you should mention this because I don't think we've talked about this I helped launch Sadiq's manifesto a couple of weeks back um uh, in London, and um, uh, and we went to like it was Easter holidays, and we went to a, a, a like a, a great sort of play scheme. I mean, it definitely had potential. Think of it, sort of proportion, you know, proportions, because there were lots of balls around, including a sort of basketball. So you know, the person, somebody who works for me was there with me, and and I think she spent quite a lot of the time being quite worried that there was going to be some bad, <laughs> some bad things were going to happen. And they weren't going to happen to Sadiq, put it that way. <laughs> you wouldn't uh, have been able to suppress that like you did the trampolining video. And there were lots of photographers. And and fortunately, there was a very low basketball net. <laughs> so it was sort of quite difficult for me not to get it in. But then there was one moment when Sadiq threw it from um, in front of him over his head and actually went into the net. And I did think it's going to probably hit me on the head. <laughs> In a sort of comedy, in a kind of comedy moment, as it sort of hits me on the head, I kind of do a sort of, you know, like a cartoon sort of seeing stars. And then people get a sort of photograph of it, but it didn't, it didn't happen. There was actually quite, even if I say so myself, there was quite a nice photograph of me and Sadiq uh, as he got the ball in the net. Um, but, you know, definitely brings back memories. Can I tempt you with a, a little jaunt up the canal on a, on a motorboat? I mean, I don't think you'd want me driving. I can see you. I don't know if it's just because of the jumper you're wearing today. As a as a gondolier in Venice, you're wearing a stripy jumper, but I think you'd look great in a gondolier. A little neckerchief, singing okay. some light opera to courting couples. I'm not sure you want me singing, really. No, no. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do very much so, having heard you sing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, that's pretty sort of... It's pretty direct. No, what I what I mean by that is I think it's a very unique experience and it might take the courting couples out of their moment of romance. They'd be so transfixed by your voice, they'd no longer be able to enjoy the sights and sounds of Venice or Little Venice. I feel I'm being humiliated. <laughs> I would say more condescended to patronised. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's well, at least there's clarity. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. Enough of me being insulted. Yeah. Now, this week of all weeks, I think, is a good week to be talking about the environment and climate. I mean, any week is a good week, but this this is the week when we had the Biden Climate Summit, a significant U.S. pledge in relation to global emissions. This week, we're joining up the dots on some of the themes we've explored in the past about how we can both tackle the environmental crisis and build a fairer society in the process. We're talking to two friends of the pod, Matt Lawrence and Laurie Laybourne Langton, who have written a great new book called Planet on Fire, a Manifesto for the Age of Environmental Breakdown. They argue that as we take steps to address what they call environmental breakdown, we should simultaneously transform our economy. Now, Matt and Laurie propose a whole range of ideas to do that, from an ambitious Green New Deal, and we'll be asking them what that means, to using measures of success beyond GDP alone. It's a fascinating book, and we have a really interesting conversation about their ideas and how to make them a reality. And then we're talking to Dominique Palmer, a young climate justice activist, about how campaigners are building support for the kind of ambition that Matt and Laurie's book calls for. And our cheerful person is art teacher and winner of the Global Teacher Prize, Andrea Zafiraku. And we're going to be asking Andrea about what it was like to win that prize and then chatting about her new book, Those Who Can Teach. And also we'll be talking to her about my artwork quite extensively. (laughs) What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is water-related as well, and I, I make no apologies, Jeff, as uh, politicians would sort of say, Boris Johnson particularly. Uh, I make no apologies for returning to the theme of the water because, um, you know, cold water swimming is becoming warmer 
And that is a significant reason to be cheerful in the sense of the water is warming up as a result of spring being here. Uh, we got to double figures today, 10 and a half degrees. And, and you know what? As a sort of, this shows my scientific background, 10 and a half degrees turns out to be significantly warmer than four and a half degrees. <laughs> Shrinkage is less of an issue. And generally, you know, it's just less cold. So anyway, I'm cheerful about that. What's your reason to be cheerful? I know you're waiting for me to ask. My wife bought me a shirt for my birthday. Is that the one you're wearing? It's not the one I'm wearing, actually. It's oh. the, the, and, and the reason I mention this is because it's made from a fabric that I have never owned clothing made from in my adult life. I think it's wonderful, and I think I want to transition to wearing this fabric most of the time. What is the fabric? Terry Towling. You will have worn them maybe when you were a baby as a nappy. Yes, yes. But so, so you're wrong. Yeah. So you basically you basically misled our listeners. No, that's that's why now. I specifically said as an adult. Ah. Yeah. Now I think maybe the occasional dressing gown could be terry telling, but it's a shirt. It's the sort of shirt you might wear to a poolside. Can party. I have a look? Can you can you bring it? Can you come on? You got to bring it. I can, well, I tell you where it'd look great if I came to your park. No, no. Can you not? Can you not show me? Can you not? But you're not wearing it. It's down. So I can go get it if you like. Yeah, I yeah. I think so. I think yeah, it deserves the thing. It, 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 listeners, I'll kind of keep talking uh, about the uh, how interested I am in this. I think it's quite important. Uh, Jeff's sort of not at the microphone. I think it's quite important for me to show interest in the uh, birthday present that his wife. Um, bought him i mean you know I'm, I'm only mildly interested in his terry toweling shirt but you know he will get offended if i don't say i'm interested so i will keep saying how interested i am um i think he will appreciate me saying i'd really like to see it and i think if i hadn't said i'd really like to see it then he would probably have said you're just not interested in my birthday present that my wife bought me and he might have told his wife that okay, he wasn't interested and then she would have got offended I'm, I'm going to do the big see, and he's now, now. I'm stepping back and in he, front of the webcam. And he's now back, you see. Oh, my God. What do you think? I mean, it is extraordinary because you wouldn't have thought it was made of terry towel. Yeah, look at that. I mean, it, I'm going to hold it up to the webcam. I mean, it sort of basically looks like it's kind of a leftover piece of the costume department from Happy Days. Don't you think... Could, could you not just imagine <laughs> me as a real fun guy at a poolside party... Don't you think it's quite happy days? Yeah, a little bit, I guess. It hasn't jumped the shark, but it is definitely happy <laughs> it's days. It's slightly reminiscent of a deck chair. Also, I think it looks like maybe something Kramer might wear in Seinfeld. Oh, yes, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Because, and it's, What's clever about it is it's sort of your colour. I think you should post a um, uh, a picture of it. Uh, it might become a meme. Um, the... Yeah, I think it's your colour because it's got the brown, the, aut- the, the autumnal brown um uh in it and but you know what's clever about it is you'd never have known it was terry toweling from from this zoom no but it's this is going to be very absorbent do you think that's important with me it definitely is this is reasons to be cheerful with ed miliband and jeff lloyd well here to talk about their new book planet on fire a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. We're joined by, I, th- I think it's safe to say, friends of the pod. We have director of the Commonwealth Think Tank, Matt Lawrence, and Laurie Laybourne Langton, associate fellow at the IPPR. Hello, both. Hello. Hi, guys. Good to see you. Congratulations on the book. Have you seen it out in the wild yet? I am. Um, the other day, I went into Waterstones over at Piccadilly and, uh, and asked them where it was. And in the end, after walking around the whole shop, we found it on the, the bottom shelf in the corner under environmental politics. And I bought that one copy. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have bought it. You should have moved it to the front. <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, and I wondered if maybe, maybe, Laurie, you can start by explaining... Uh, what what you mean by environmental breakdown? Because this this goes beyond just the climate crisis alone. Exactly, and, and in this we wanted to make a key point around language. Often, climate change is the phrase that's used, and there are problems with both of the words in that phrase. On the climate side, as you're alluding to, um, that doesn't describe the full picture of of the assault on the natural world. Species are being made extinct. Parts of you know, whole ecosystems and habitats are being torn down. Seas are being polluted. So we need to think of it as sort of a wider environmental problem. 
And then change is too benign. So all of that is an incredibly destructive process. And we're seeing changes in the natural world that are unprecedented, definitely in human history, but also on a longer time scales. And that's why we think environmental breakdown is a much better way to put it. And, and that requires really a shift in people's minds into an emergency footing when they come to thinking about this in the same way that we're tragically used to thinking, for example, in terms of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, now to explain how we got here. You tell the story of Easter Island and you, you tell that story in a different way to uh, what, what people might have typically heard it. Do you want to, um, do you want to tell us that and, and about the lessons it offers for us? The classic story of Easter Island, the classical one that's been told for a number of years now, particularly in some environmental communities, is that this island right out there, um, isolated from anywhere else in, in the Pacific, uh, had a, a an indigenous population that overused their resources. And they did that unthinkingly. You know, there wasn't anything particularly extraordinary about the people on the island. They did it because they needed to cut down trees to build homes and they farmed and fished to feed themselves and their kids. And as time went on, they destroyed the environment to such a point that it was no longer to prov- no longer able to provide them with the stable, benign conditions that they needed to live. And the, the critical lessons that this story has to tell for us, we're told by that version of the story, is that humans are short-termist. They have got addicted to certain technologies, in their case, over-exploiting the trees and other bits of the island. Um, and all of that together explains why we're in the same situation we're in now. The planet's like a mini version of Easter Island, or sorry, a planet-scale version of Easter Island. The problem is with that story is it's not true. And really what led to the civilization on Easter Island to collapse was that Westerners arrived and brought with them diseases uh, and they took many of the people off the island to be sold into slavery um, and they, they killed many of them, often for target practice from boats that were going past. And they weren't doing that for a laugh, those people that came to that island. They were doing it because they were compelled there by increasingly globalized economic systems that demanded people find cheaper nature to exploit and human beings to exploit as well. And so we say in the book that that, that truer story is a, is a much more useful story to have in your mind when you want to understand why it's come to this. But also the fact that we talk about the former one and not the latter one is itself a bit of a story for, how, for our blind spots and how we've got into a bind with regards to the environmental crisis that we find ourselves in now. So, I mean, th- this week uh, in, in particular, there have been uh, a lot of an- announcements on both sides of the Atlantic uh, in terms of tackling the climate crisis. But you, know, you, you, you say that the, even this growing action that we're seeing on global emissions, it's, it's insufficient. Why is that? There are a couple of ways to look at this. We're coming up with lots of targets, which is really good, though... Uh, it's a bit late in the game, really, for how perilous the situation we find ourselves in. Delivering those, those targets will not deliver themselves. So delivering on those targets is the key bit that we need to be thinking about. And we're yet at the point where we really have a credible set of policies and ideas from many governments for how that's delivered upon. And secondly, um, our way of looking at this of and you may have seen the graphs, the sort of vertiginous downward line that gets us to zero or net zero uh, in the jargon emissions towards the mid part of the century. A lot of that or a large part of that is based upon the idea that we will roll out technologies that will suck emissions down out of the atmosphere on a vast scale. Now that is going to have to happen. And if we'd started on this more concertedly many decades ago, around the time that I was born at the end of the 1980s, then we may not have had to fall back on that kind of technology. And there's a huge complexities about what that means. But one of the things that's important for your question is that we have to reduce emissions as quickly as possible, as soon as possible, because every bit not only limits the temperature rise or the potential destruction later, but means that we don't have to fall back on this massive bet of carbon sucking technologies being rolled out by you know me in 20 years time and by my kids you know so matt do you want to talk about what you call the three regressive responses to environmental breakdown that you discuss in the book and what the alternative is there's three and they sort of overlap almost in a venn diagram there's almost like a status quo approach um, and we've seen some of those uh responses this week which 
Some of it is, you know, top level encouraging, but when you dig beneath the surface, there's still not enough investment, there's still not enough urgency, there's still enough sort of drive to look at sort of the structural causes of environmental breakdown. That then links to a sort of a second response, which would be outright uh, denial, uh, obfuscation, and you know we can see that in some of the sort of you know populist rights of you know Farage's uh, argument saying, oh well, why on earth do we need to do this? This is you know this is just imposing too much cost. Is this even a serious problem? And you know someone like Trump in some ways embodied that unwillingness to try and change um, at all. And then there's a sort of third, um, sort of very quickly bubbling up, and you can see that in some of the politics of uh, someone like Le Pen's party in France, some of the rhetoric coming out of that which is this kind of eco-fascist um, politics, eco-fascist response to the crisis, which says in a world of you know, rising sea levels, in a world of millions of people displaced by environmental breakdown, the response is not sort of one of equity, one of justice, one of trying to sort of build a better world together. It's about even further... Uh, even greater attempts to sort of uh, create borders, to you know, put even more restrictions on um, people who have been forced to migrate, a whole set of very violent sort of measures, essentially, that tap into the destabilisation of environmental breakdown and then politicise that in a really reactionary sort of eco-fascist um, response. And so you know, in terms of our response, well, what we say is like the, the, the good news, but also the bad news is that we say that in some ways, environmental breakdown in the round is overwhelmingly a political crisis in the sense that we have the resources, we increasingly have the capability, the technologies, the techniques that we need to begin not just to decarbonise our economies, but to bring us within sustainable limits. So what we say is, you know, to meet that political crisis, what we need is to offer a really big, bold, inclusive, transformative offer of a better world. So not just decarbonising our existing economy, but actually in the process making that a whole society-wide effort to build a future, a post-carbon future, that is just and democratic by design. Can I relate this back to what Laurie said about Easter Island? Um, are you saying this because you want a fairer society, you obviously do, or are you saying this because it sort of relates to tackling this particular problem? So I think one of the great strengths is that the things we need to do to build a sustainable world are the things that will actually make life more pleasant, more secure, more flourishing for ordinary people. So let's take, you know, transport. By decarbonising our transport stock, we actually, you know, reduce air pollution. We have sort of better flows of traffic. We have much, you know, more walking and cycling and low carbon forms of leisure, which is sort of going to make life more pleasurable. So this, there is this coincidence that actually... Doing the things we want will build sort of a better and a fairer world, exactly because this is about healthier communities, it's about better forms of work, it's about more forms of leisure, it's about more forms of communal luxury, you know, good parks, nice of you know, local theatres, whatever it might be, that those forms of low carbon but public luxury, those are some of the solutions, and they can actually build a big sort of political boat, so to speak, because those are solutions that actually improve everyone's life, as well as tackling the inequality and climate crisis, which are conjoined. Let's talk then about some examples of what your approach would look like in uh, practice. And, and, and you go through a number of areas in your um, in, in the book, starting with sort of GDP. And we've covered this on the podcast before. Say a little bit, if you will, about sort of why we need to think, why and how we need to think beyond GDP. GDP was a sort of you know, a metric for measuring our economy, which was invented in sort of you know, 20s and 30s. And... You know, like many of the institutions that organise our economy in the 20th century, they potentially had their place, but their relevance to how we measure the good life, how we measure how an economy serves human needs, which is ultimately what you know, economies should be for, not humans serving economic needs, is increasingly less clear. And, you know, I'm sure in your previous podcast you have sort of, you know, explored some of the ways that GDP has sort of metrics of success fails to sort of get at the things that we all really value, whether it's clean air, you know, quality time with their family, whatever it might be. So we say, like, yes, like, we should be, th we should have metrics, but they should be more expansive. It should be about how we can expand leisure time, how we can expand sustainability, how can we can expand sort of inclusivity in what we do grow. And actually, the focus should exactly be on thriving relationships, thriving communities, well-being. And that, you know, that may be coincident with 
sort of GDP in a traditional sense, but we think actually we need to be much more ambitious in terms of the measures we use in the 21st century to work out what we value. You also talk about something called universal basic services in your book that's different from universal basic income. It is also something we've covered um, some podcasts ago. Um, Say a little bit about that and its relevance here. Universal basic services is the collective democratic provision of the assets and institutions and services we need to live well. So whether that might be broadband, whether that might be sort of transport systems, whether that might be housing, there are a series of things that all of us need. And then actually, if we think about it, just planning and delivering those services so that everyone can have access, everyone can enjoy this, is actually a much more efficient, equitable, and also sort of lower carbon way of organising society. Because if you just think about it, you know, people travelling on a bus, on a decarbonised sort of, you know, free bus, let's say, will just have less environmental impacts than all those same people driving a car. But so that idea of universal basic services is about sort of how can we collectively organise our society so that individuals can thrive, but also that all of us have access to the means to live a good life. As I read your book, you know, you go through the way that firms need to change, the way that uh, finan- the financial system needs to change, uh, as well as the way, as Matt's talked about, that we need to think about, you know, things like GDP or universal basic services. I mean, what would you say to those people who say, look, chaps, you know, you've got this massive challenge, which is the um, uh, climate emergency. And you're adding to that, you know, the transformation of capitalism, which has proved, to put it mildly, slightly tricky, um, uh, you know, you presumably would say, well, it's just necessary to transform the model of capitalism fundamentally if you're going to solve the climate crisis. Yeah, I, definitely. I think one of the key things that makes it not just more imaginable and real for people, but I think more politically possible, is when we tie together the the disenfranchisement and suffering that's come as a result of other parts of our economic system, when we connect those to the environmental crisis, which is abs- we are absolutely able to do, what it does is provide, a, 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 it gets it back to the root pro- cause of the problem here. And it also makes it more politically alive. And I think that's one of the amazing things that's happened, particularly in recent years, is that it's connected with other problems that people are having, because that connection absolutely exists. And the solutions that could deal with both simultaneously are there now. And in the book, you are you do emphasise the importance of political strategy. You know, because it's quite comprehensive vision, you know, one thing you might think is, well, where, where, do we, where the hell do we start with this? You know, or, or where does, you know, how do you going to go about it? Talk, talk, you must have thought a lot about that and talked a lot about that as you were writing the book. So why don't you say something about that? That's in some ways the key question. You know, you can come up with cookbooks of the future, but unless you actually, you know, make the meal, um, ultimately it becomes a little redundant. That again goes back to this point uh, I made earlier about the political crisis in that sort of, you know, the tension is that, you know, we increasingly know what needs to be done and yet we can't mobilise the political power to do it. So what we do in the book is, um, as you say, we sort of sketch some potential strategies and we sort of uh, dig into one, you know, relatively recent example in which there has been a really significant uh, paradigmatic shift in how our economy was organised which is, of course, sort of, you know, the Thatcherite revolution uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And there are obviously very important differences, but some similarities that we can perhaps draw on. There was a big crisis in the 70s, a sort of long-running crisis that neither the left or the right seemed to be able to resolve. And then what happened was in the late 70s, this is a very quick historical review, but then, you know, in the late 70s, there was a sort of breakthrough from what was considered at the time a very radical uh, solution. And if we sort of unpick some of those themes... There was a building up of sort of, you know, popular coalitions because there was real material gains given to people. So right to buy and privatisation gave people real benefits. There was also prefiguration. So what didn't just come out of nowhere, things like right to buy were trialled in places like Wandsworth. And then there's also this sort of um, ecosystem of ideas, of voices in the media, of influential business people that kind of laid the ground and helped support this transformation. So what does that look like now in terms of strategy? Well, that suggests we need to prefigure. So we need to sort of scale up publicly owned electric uh, vehicle you know, transport networks in Greater Manchester, for example, or publicly owned energy companies or green cooperatives or really support B corporations or businesses like Unilever that are trying to sort of 
decarbonize and show the future today, we need to think about, you know, strategically coordinating, you know, social movements, think tanks, all those type of things. We need to build up sort of, you know, a new sort of story that links together decarbonization with the story of national renewal. And that's with something like a Green New Deal about a whole society-wide effort to build out a sort of future of post-carbon plenty through a sort of national effort and sort of, you know, linking that towards global solidarity as well. You know, that's about the story. Many of the seeds of the type of things we need to talk about, whether it's, you know, the scaling of community-owned renewable energy, sort of green forms of financing, sort of trade unionists that are increasingly, like, really sort of focusing in on what are the sort of types of just transition, whether it's sort of, you know, social movements that are combining racial justice with climate justice with global solidarity. Many of these things are already here, and it's just a question of cohering them and creating that leverage to sort of bring that new world to birth. Because it's not, you know, it's the world is always pregnant with change. It's about how you can then sort of, you know, which which sort of trajectory will you go off from that position. Now, now, Matt, you talked about the idea of a Green New Deal. Um, that phrase is bandied around a lot. Um, just say to us, what does the phrase mean to you and and Laurie, if you can speak for Laurie, and um, <laughs> sort of what and what you know and, and what role, you know, what's its importance? So, Green New Deal, um, whether it's you know in the UK, the US, or globally, it's about a whole society wide effort coming together to drive the rapid and just, critically, transformation of our society towards one of post carbon sort of uh, equity. So it combines climate and economic justice together and puts in place, whether it's green housing, green transport networks, green energy systems, green food systems, the investment, the care, the urgency we need to bring that about. And talk to us about, um, if you like, that's the kind of big, big narrative uh, and, and kind of big idea in this. Talk to us about the role of local action and in towns and cities as a way of of pointing the way towards this kind of agenda, if you like, a sort of bottom-up process. You th- you think about it, you know, towns and cities are about, you know, where we come together to live. And you can see how you can begin to organise in towns and cities, whether it's transport systems, new forms of communal leisure, parks, theatres, leisure centres, you know, public and shared institutions, which tend to have lower carbon sort of uh, impacts, lower environmental impacts in the round, versus, you know, much more carbon intensive private consumption. So I think in towns and cities, we can really see the vanguard of this transformation taking place. How do we get past thinking about this as a set of policies in waiting for the next social democratic or left wing government? How, how, and how do we sell these ideas to people on the right or centre right, who aren't climate sceptics? But they think the you know the the wonder and the ingenuity of capitalism is is going to solve this, and actually they would hear these ideas as a, a Trojan horse for socialism. Mm. So, the first thing I'd say is that it's very important to stress that all parts of society have to be a part in this transition, as you're alluding to. Um, we cannot hope to roll out a vast, what will end up being multi-generational project to restabilise the natural world if it's seen as a hugely oppositional thing where half the population wants to participate in a certain way and the other half doesn't. Within that, it's important also to remember that what is perceived as left-wing or right-wing or centrist or whatever way you want to look at it is not immutable. It does change over time. And there are certain things that would have been unimaginable as conceiving as being part of a conservative manifesto of the 1980s, at the beginning of the 1970s, for example. What can our listeners do? What what can we kind of ask people or inspire people to go away and do on this? What can people do? Well, we can begin to build the type of, you know, cross-society power that can create those forms of leverage that can enact change. So that might be, you know, potentially if you're in work, you know, joining a trade union, beginning to work towards sort of just transition plans within your workplace. It could be joining a rentist union and sort of saying, insisting that we need sort of decarbonised housing stock as well as affordable rent. It could be about sort of, you know, moving your money into, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, Triodos Bank, whoever it might be, that invests in sustainable uh Metrics, it could be about joining wider campaigns that sort of begin to put, you know, mobilise collective pressure because, you know, ultimately this is, you know, this can't be done individually. There's really no shortage of options, which goes back to that, you know, key point. 
this is a political crisis, but therefore we have a whole range of tools to build that sort of social power to resolve that crisis in the direction of equality, equity and sustainability. Matt, Laurie, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now to talk about some of the practical ways in which this agenda that we've just talked about can be can be put into practice. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Dominique Palmer, activist with Fridays for the Future and the UK Student Climate Network. Let's start. What's the story of how you got involved in climate activism? So for me, this was about two years ago. Um, I was still a student. I just finished my A-levels and I started to educate myself more about um, the climate crisis and I became more aware of the severity of the climate and ecological emergency. And so I went to my first climate strike and then the following kind of actions that were organised. And once I just found that climate movement, I realised that there was something I could do about the crisis and that's what really pushed me into action. What, what did it feel like attending the climate strike for the first time? You know, was it sort of an eye-opener for you? Yeah, it was. I mean, for the for the very first time, it was really nice to see um, all the people that were out there that felt, um, you know, just as passionate and just uh, had the same urgency as I did. And to kind of see that and like feel the momentum and like the energy was just incredible. And it really also gave like it, it put some weight off of my shoulders as well. It felt like I wasn't the only one trying to act on this. And can you talk to us a bit about why it's so important for everyone but specifically to you um, to have justice at the heart of climate action so when it comes to justice it's mainly because the climate crisis doesn't exist you know in a vacuum um, it's so interconnected um, to us and to society and the crisis right now is really fueled by inequalities and exploitation of people and the planet and particularly those in the global south and in a more kind of like personal sense, um, I grew up in one of the most like polluted areas in London, for example. And this is also something that like across the UK, a lot of communities, particularly black and, black and brown communities are facing. And so there you can see a lot of the different inequalities when it comes to this like global crisis as well. Dominique, talk to us just about how you've changed as a result of getting involved in this. I mean, you know, what's been your journey in relation to this, this whole issue? I've really found like my individual power and like my voice and that I have. And I've realized that, um, you know, even as individuals, we have so much more power than we realize um, to act. And especially when we come together as a collective, that's like incredibly powerful. And I've also gained a lot more confidence in doing that. You know, I was talking to um, one of my friends about this and they weren't really sure like what difference you could really make. You know, they were like, you know, the system that we're in, um, you can't make much of a difference or an impact as like one person. And I really just, well, now um, it's proven wrong that you really can. Dominic, we've, we've spoken about um, Fridays for Future on the podcast before. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on what we can learn uh, from being involved in that campaign, what we can learn from that about how to build support for change. I think one of the key things um, to learn and that I've learned is the power of the people and that this has to be understood in order to empower others as well. Essentially, the people united will never be defeated and a movement is like created and sustained by just so many people, not just one type of person, not just one type of activist, but so, so many different people bringing so many different skills. And so behind every strike and protest and action and campaign that we do, there are just so many different people behind this. And having that like grassroots level movement is so important. But the most important thing is that we don't let it fade into just a moment and keep up the momentum, essentially, because that's how we win. And that's how we reach other people. And that's how we really show those in power that we won't back down. And tell us about climate live which is something that you're involved in what what is it and t tell us more about it yeah so with climate live on april 24th there'll be um just really exciting um live streamed music events taking place like all over the world um and like different actions that are music related um in over 40 countries and this is all leading up to our concerts in october our big concerts and then october 16th are our big concerts so there will be like simultaneous 
global youth-led climate concerts in over 40 countries, led by the Fighters of Future Youth Climate Groups. Well, look, it's been incredibly inspiring to talk to you. The whole climate movement has been supercharged by the voice of young people. We'll look out and we'd urge our listeners to look out for the events under Climate Live. Dominique Palmer, thank you so much for joining us. Amazing. Thank you. Well, what did you think? I came out of it feeling a bit more optimistic than I did going in because when I did the reading up on the episode, I felt, well, these are, are, are great ideas, but it, it it felt a long way off when you think about things like the, the electoral cycle. But I, I guess I was quite persuaded by the idea that these these policies don't need to belong to the left or the right and especially when you think about that in context of you know, at the last election the conservatives would would never have announced the kind of support package we've seen during the pandemic but the emergency of the pandemic has meant that they introduced the measures that they did and about actually if you can get people to think about the environmental breakdown in the right way then it's not just a future manifesto for a socially democratic or left-wing party um it's it's ideas that could belong to any anyone and everyone because of the urgency of it i i think that's right and i th- i'd say two things i take out of it look the first is it's incredibly important that and, and i think we can't say this enough that as we talk about tackling the climate crisis, we don't just talk about avoiding the nightmare, but we talk about better lives for people. Because the language of it this just being about a big sacrifice that we have to make now, to caricature it slightly, just to make the point, you know, let's have worse lives now, because that's important to save the planet, I just don't think is right. It's not because I don't think there's some degree of sacrifice or change involved but because i think if you cut air pollution create good jobs more green spaces all of which help to contribute to tackling the climate crisis you'll have better lives for people and we've got to be about better lives for people and i think you know that for me that's the most important take out of laurie and matt's book and the second thing i think as you say is you know things can seem impossible until they actually happen you know what I mean? It's 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 so you might think, well, it all sounds a bit far fetched. You know, is it ever going to happen, etc. But on the other hand, will, would we really have said? And I'm not saying that the Biden thing is the complete answer. Would we really have said that? You know, a, a year ago, America will be cutting its emissions by half. Would we really have said there'll be a one trillion dollar, you know, infrastructure plan um, that 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 would be produced? So so you know, things look impossible until they're 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 no longer. Uh, impossible. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For our cheerful person this week, we're going to talk to author of Those Who Can Teach What It Takes to Make the Next Generation. It is the world's best teacher, Andrea Zafiraku. Hello. I can describe you as that, right? <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you can say 2018. It still feels so strange. Yes, but hello. Hello to you all. This was the Global Teacher Prize that you won in 2018. So, so you're not the reigning world's best teacher. No, gosh, that weight has now been lifted. Um, there's a wonderful young man who represents India who's now the winner. So, yes, so my, my period was 2018. And did you have to pass the trophy on? No, mine is actually in the back. It's, uh, it's standing proud in my, um, on my bookshelf in my office at school. So it's there and it's gleaming and it's got lovely memories. And uh, yeah, it's there. <laughs> well, tell us about some of those memories. I mean, how, how did it happen? You ended up going to Downing Street the day after the award ceremony. Tell us the story. It was quite a lot in process. So I was nominated by an ex-colleague of mine and I had no idea about this particular award. Never heard of it. Um, and they nominated me and they said, please, can you look out for the email and apply? So um, I wasn't interested in doing that. And I think on the day before my wedding, the night before my wedding, I had to receive an email to say, please, can you apply? Um, and then I quickly did it because it was a deadline. And then I went, right, it's done, it's done, it's there, it's gone. Um, and the next thing I heard was a few months later, I made it into the top 50. So... Uh, and that was plenty, <laughs> that was enough, you know, tip top 50 from like uh, 30,000 applications wow. um, across across 170 countries. So it's pretty huge. And I think that's when my heart just went a bit like, oh, my God, what's happened? What is this? Uh, and then a few months later, I found out I was in the top 10. And then I think from then on, my life changed uh, significantly. Um, March the 18th was the day that... I found out I was the global uh, the global teacher prize winner, and that was in Dubai. We had a f- fabulous conference in Dubai. Um, it was I felt so uncomfortable and out of place. Everywhere you looked was ministers and celebrities, and then there was these little teachers just huddling together, thinking we are so out of place. <laughs> Uh, and then um yeah and then the day after winning and having that crazy wild um like fun 24 hours of just interviews and and more interviews and chaos and cameras and everything I didn't sleep on that flight home because first of all I was in business class I've never been in business class in my time so the amount of buttons that was on a Dubai flight you know I was like right you know so landed there and then I was told, right, we have to go to Downing Street. Went to Downing Street. Uh, so I went to Parliament first, uh, met, and then I was in the gallery for their um, Prime Minister's Question Time. And that was pretty cool because uh, the Prime Minister at that time, Theresa May, said, and we're so proud that we have, you know, the best teacher in the world as a UK teacher. And everybody was like, raw! <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you had um, Jeremy Corbyn at the, uh, the opposition, and that comes up, well, I've actually already met her, and I uh, met her last week. <laughs> <laughs> and then this little old me in the gallery upstairs going, oh my God, they're fighting over me. Tell us a bit about your approach to teaching and your story. You know, what was it that led this former colleague of yours to nominate you in the first place? Can you see how, because this is a Zoom call, I've got my hands like this on my head. I, I, I'm scratching my head trying to think, why? Why is it? Why is it? It's because for the last 15 years, I have loved and dedicated my life to my school, um, loved helping my kids, the students, loved celebrating the arts, working with my colleagues, really trying to raise achievement. So let me take me for instance. I was not brilliant at art or textiles at uh, at school. I I bizarrely got an A in my, and I'm boasting now, in my O-level, as it then was, that's before GCSEs, um art but i think it was a sort of travesty really i mean i don't think i merited it at all um but so if i came into your lesson and i'm a uh seven let's say so i've just come from primary school how you were going to engage me yeah well the thing is is that i'm really sorry that you had an experience whereby you weren't praised 
or your confidence wasn't tapped into or motivated or acknowledged. I think that that's the, that's the thing. So my job as an art teacher is to make sure that I find the thing which every child can do to say, oh my God, that's really, you must be really proud of that. Look what you've achieved. And it doesn't have to be drawing. I think the biggest fear which they have is painting. Um, I, I normally ban uh, rubbers or erasers in my room because um, I try and get them to kind of get out, you know, to really feel much more in control and master the equipment, take risks. I sometimes get them to draw in pens so that they can't, you know, it's whatever line you're making, you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to love that line. And you look horrified by that prospect. No, but but yeah. what it does, it just pushes them out of their comfort zone. And that's when they take risks and that's when they learn. Um, and that's when they have those kind of real breakthrough moments. You see, one of the reasons, just to go back to me for a second. Um, you know, Ed, is this about you uh, or about uh, me? Uh, well, it may be a bit of both. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, the reason I ended up with the A level, sorry to go on about this, is that I did a really basic picture of it, like a tree in a telephone box, which was around my house. And it, it's like a long story. I think I have told Jeff before because I hadn't done the coursework. And then I eventually I did it all at the last minute and I could only do something very simple. But then it was my teacher who said to me, well, maybe you should think about, you know, like a geometric design. So I did these compass circles and then I colored them in in different ways, you know. I think in a way she helped me find something I might be more apt to do. You know what I mean? Well, do you know what's quite interesting about your uh, this conversation? You've more or less memorised that lesson, that moment, what you had to yeah. do. And I think that's the beauty about the art room, be it the music room, drama room. It's the lesson, the, the journey of making that end product, the decisions you've got to make, the challenges you'll face, um, I think that's the learning that will always be embedded in you. There are lots of stories of students in your book. Um, t talk to us about Alvaro's story and what it shows about that importance of art, because it's a really important story in the book. And and uh, and 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 what, what's the wider lesson of it? Um, so his story is that he transferred to my school from a, a specialist school, um, and it was a special educational needs school, and he had loads and loads of labels that you, you would say. Um, attached with him which were about his learning disability and one of them was that he was selected mute so he would not talk um, he was absolutely intimidated and he came to us and he sat in my GCSE art class and it was my job to get him a grade and I thought well this is not going to be possible his parents don't think he can achieve um, he's just babysitting he's here to, for me to babysit but after that first lesson um I, I sent them the whole class of homework um, and he wasn't engaging at all. He was literally just almost like a ghost figure, terrified. Um, and uh, the next lesson he came in, brought in his homework. Then when I saw what he created, which was this most incredible drawing of a guitar, I just screamed. I was like, stop! Did you make this piece? Is this yours, Avaro? And he looked at me um, and I saw his beautiful eyes for the first time. And then he was like, he was, he was shocked. He like, was looking around to think, somebody saved me from this mad woman. And I was like, is this your work? And he, was, and he nodded and that was it. I was like, right, you can. And so I bombarded him with things and pencils and materials. Like, I want you to do this, 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 this. And he did. And it was a really difficult journey for him. But he went from having a predicted grade of nothing to getting a D at GCSE. But the game changer was, is that throughout the time at the school, he became so confident. He was carrying around his portfolio in the playground like, and the kids would come up and talk to him. He'd come and sit at the back of my class when he had a free lesson and he would sit there quietly. The kids would go up to him and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, show me how you do that. Let me have a look at your book. Uh, and... He, for him, it was that was the, the room, the space that changed his life. And there's a wider lesson here, isn't there, Andrea, which we were talking just before the microphone went on, because you begin the book by a conversation after the one you had with Theresa May, um, with Nick Gibb, the schools minister. And, you know, your frustration at the way in which the government has narrowed the focus of schools to the EBAC um, and downgraded creative subjects and and isn't the alvaro lesson and the wider lesson of your book that creative subjects like art textiles and so on are and i think this is what the government underestimates are a, are a multiplier in other words 
they're kind of good in themselves, but they can also transform people's educational experience more widely. Mm. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. I was just speaking to a poet who's um, a rap artist and he said to me, because of being a rap artist and um, and the skill needed, I'm better at maths and better at science. It's really made me uh, become more aware of the language terminology. And I just thought, this is what we need to hear. <laughs> you know, why are you not on a platform? Why? Yeah, so, uh, and I'm just thinking that this is exactly right. It's the transformative skills which the arts and the experiences produce. The problem is, is that you can't measure them, can you? They're not measured, or we don't measure them. And that's why it's, uh, we say no, not that they're not worthy, or no, they're not good enough at the moment. Now, there was, there was prize money, um, a million dollars, and you used, used that to, to set up a charity, Artists in Residence. Yes, I did. Talk to us about that decision, it was, um, well, God, how uncomfortable, right? You get a million dollars and how stressful is that? Having, having a label, world's best teacher, million dollars. And just to be clear about this, were there any constraints on how you could use the money? No, the money is mine. So you could have bought like, you know, 10 Ferrari. Lamborghinis. Yeah, I could, I, could have, I could have paid off my mortgage. I could have, there's loads of like, I could have, I could have, I could have. But the way I see it, and I'm so comfortable with this decision, is the fact that... Um, I do believe that the reason why I'm here is because of the support and everything that's happened in my school. And a school is, is bigger than one person, you know, it's, it's my community. I decided to set up a charity foundation called Artists in Residence because I wanted um, schools in deprived areas and the students there to really experience and get that joy, that, that wow moment of being connected with the real role model, with the real artist. And working with artists, there's something magical that happens there. The kids' eyes light up. Um, it's the, the outcomes is incredible. The teachers learn from that experience. So what we do, we just bring artists into schools to collaborate and, and uh, produce a bespoke project, which the whole school community can celebrate. Andrea Zafiraku, uh, art and textiles teacher, uh, the world's best teacher uh, and author of the book, Those Who Can Teach, What It Takes to be, Make the Next Generation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. We are. I need to tell you about a disturbing comment gone on last week's promo video. Yeah. Somebody commented that I look like Mike Harding. You know what? That's really accurate. The Rochdale Cowboy. Is that what he's known as? I, th- I believe that's what they, they called him. I mean... I'm a, I'm a well-wisher towards Mike Harding. I've enjoyed some of his output. I'm not, I'm not sure that that was the look I was going for. I mean, it, it, I, actually, you texted me to say this, and I thought it was quite uncanny, actually. This isn't good. I was hoping you'd say, Jeff, no, it's not that type of moustache. It's more kind of an East London hip moustache, not a ageing folk singer. Jeff, it's not that type of moustache. It's more an East London kind of hip moustache the insincerity well i am a politician right <laughs> shall we thank our guests i'd like to thank matt lawrence and laurie Laybourne langton and i'd like to thank dominique palmer and uh, thanks to the brilliant andrea zafiraku for cheering us all up and telling us about her book emma caution produces our podcast all the research and guests uh, found by joel pierce he shows his working out on our website you can go and look at that cheerfulpodcast.com Joel's... go to our website go to it we go love now. our website you love our website love everybody what... loves our website what a destination for you to honestly go to. you are missing out if you are not on our website absolutely there we go i think that was uh, hard enough yeah. sell wasn't it yeah yeah um yeah. go to our website and uh, Joel is, is backed up in this by Joe Kenyon. Uh, we also say hello to our friends at Left Foot Forward. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. By the way, I was driving through Leeds and I, it was we were in a taxi. Who should I hear on the radio? And I said, that's Gail Lofthouse. And the guy said to me, yeah, that is Gail Lofthouse. Yes, Gail, our announcer, who has been nominated for, I believe, a very prestigious radio award. Has she? Yes. We love Gail. We do. Almost as much as we love our website. I don't think that's great saying that we 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 love a website no no we love Gail more being. than our website okay yeah, yeah. Okay, we yeah. love our website almost as much as Gail yeah. yes um, Ed Seed composed the music James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole he's been Captain Jeff he's been Cabin Boy Ed and these have been reasons to be nautical. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.